Well, it was the big exam. Our class of 16-year-olds just completed several weeks of intensive study, culminating in this test, the Minnesota Drivers Written Test. As a special privilege, the local DMV sent a representative to our classroom to administer the test. We wouldn't even have to schedule the exam. We could find out right away if we had passed. Well, the tension, as you might imagine, in the room was high. A lot was riding on this test. After all, if we passed, the unlimited freedom of driving ourselves was awaiting us. Well, as long as we passed the road test. So we had all studied diligently, and we were being careful to answer each question correctly. All of us, that is, except for one student in particular. He hurried through the exam with that, I got this test figured out attitude. He was the first one done. He dropped the test in front of the testing lady, fully expecting a passing grade. After a few minutes, the testing lady completed her grading of his exam, and she slapped it down in the upper corner of her desk. Fail! She called out loudly enough for the whole class to hear. Well, the young man, who had been waiting eagerly, was so surprised he nearly fell out of his chair. And the rest of us who were taking the exam began to tremble with fear that we might be next. Well, that's one test story from my life. But taking tests, by the way, I wasn't that guy. (laughs) I did pass. I did pass. Well, we are not surprised, though, to see tests because they're part of life. And we see tests in the Bible. We can go back to the first test back in Genesis that God gave in the Garden of Eden. And we see tests throughout the scriptures, and we know there is a test that's yet to come. The great final judgment in which every one of us will face that ultimate test before God. Well, here in our text this morning before us, we're going to be in James chapter 3. And so if you turn in your Bibles there to James 3, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 18. And we find here a test. This is how James presents this section of Scripture to us. And I invite you to do what James calls upon you to do. Take this test. I'm going to read these few verses here and ask you to follow along and listen for the test that James is presenting. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
Now, in our journey through James here as a church these past few weeks, we've suggested that the major theme of the book is found back in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where James calls on us to be authentic in our Christianity, controlling our tongues, caring for widows and orphans, keeping away from worldly pursuits. He says being unstained from the world. Now there is, of course, much debate about how James organizes his argument as he deals with these themes of authenticity. But most agree that there is a unit of thought that runs from the beginning of chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 12, particularly dealing with the tongue. Now notice that James spends a large section of his writing on the tongue, section we looked at last week in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And then again, he will talk about the tongue in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4. So I think this section of the letter appears to be a unit. Now last week, again, we considered the proper and improper use of the tongue in verses 1 through 12, as Rich led us through that section of this chapter. And this leads us then to James' discussion of the need for wisdom in good conduct, not only with regard to the proper use of the tongue, but also with regard to all of life. Now, we'll be looking at this theme of heavenly versus earthly wisdom in our text here this morning. And it does connect even with the next section in chapter 4 that we'll be hearing preached next week, where quarreling is directly related to the problems of envy and jealousy that are raised here in this passage. These are envy and jealousy characteristics of wisdom from below. So what is the test that James is giving here in our passage? Well, it's the wisdom test, isn't it? Those who pass are living lives characterized by wisdom from above. And those who fail are those who live by the wisdom from below. Wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, as James calls it. Now he makes his opinion regarding this test. Just like almost anyone who administers a test, what is their hope? Unless you have a really mean teacher, their hope is that you will pass the test. And what is it that James hopes for us as he gives this test? And he says, who is wise and understanding among you? That's his desire. He wants us to pass that test. His point is clear that we must demonstrate, you must demonstrate a life characterized by a wisdom from above. You need to pass this test. Now, how is that going to happen? How can you pass the wisdom test? By avoiding the qualities, then, that we see here described of earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom. By embracing the qualities of divine wisdom, of wisdom from above. So I'd like you to compare yourself with this passage this morning to see how you can do in this test. Now, before we look in detail at this passage of James' descriptions of wisdom from above and from below, I'd like us to pause to reflect upon the source of this wisdom. And this is very important. I mean, if we, if we don't grasp the source of the wisdom from the very onset here, we're going to misunderstand the whole passage. We'll get it all wrong. If we look at this text simply as a list of positive qualities that I need to incorporate into my life so that I can be a better person, 
more pleasing to God and have wisdom like His? Well, first of all, if that's how we're going to approach this test this morning, I can tell you right now, we will all fail. And we'll fail miserably. None of us, on our own, can be wise. As Paul reminds us, none of us seeks after God. None of us is able to please Him. We are against Him. We are sinners and we can't do one bit of good on our own. Rather, we must approach this test with the realization that wisdom comes from God. It comes from above. In fact, if you look back in chapter 1, verse 17, James already told us there, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So when we see this phrase, wisdom from above, here in this text, that's wisdom from heaven. That's wisdom from God. He is the only one who is the giver of wisdom. He is the true source of that wisdom. We can only pass this test if we are related to the one who is the only human who was perfectly wise and who lived accordingly. And his name, of course, was Jesus. We can only be related to him by turning from our sin and trusting in his cross work alone to pay the penalty for our sin. In this way, Christ's righteousness is then transferred to us and we can amazingly pass this test, but only through Him and not in and of ourselves. So before we even look at this text, whether we even think about whether we can pass it, whether I am wise or unwise, we must recognize the true source of wisdom. It is not us. It is not in us. It is through Christ. And it is by His power. And if you are not rightly related to Christ today, what I'm about to tell you as far as passing this test will be an impossibility. Because we can only be wise and only have the wisdom and receive the wisdom from above if we are rightly related to Jesus. And we have accepted Him as our Savior. Well, let's look at the passage then. There's a very simple argument here that James gives. As we've said many times already in our preaching through James, it's not hard to understand what James is trying to tell us. We have to be pretty dull not to get the point. And what is the point? Well, who is wise and understanding? So he explains to us there, beginning in verse 13, what godly wisdom looks like. Next, he describes the wisdom from below in verses 14 through 16. And then he will return to the theme of wisdom from above in verses 17 and 18. So we're going to walk through this passage following the canonical order here as James has given it to us. And remember again that we can only pass the test through Christ and his power in us. So let's begin in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding? Well, James answers this with a command. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Show your good conduct, he says, in the meekness of wisdom. Now, there are two items here that demand our attention as we look at the phrases here that James uses. First of all, it produces good works. And secondly, it produces humility. 
or meekness, as the translation states it here for us. So I'd like to look at, first of all, this notion of good conduct. Good conduct. This type of conduct is not just speaking about one-time acts of kindness or good deeds. Notice here that James says that we show our works out of a good lifestyle. In fact, this is a better word to translate the word for conduct, the the, the original language here. It is more of the idea of of a lifestyle. This is not just a one-time event, a one-time demonstration of peace or gentleness or whatever, but it is a pattern of life. And what does this life look like? I think we could describe it this way. One commentator mentioned this, and I thought, thought it was a good, good way of seeing this. We do not remember. We do not notice what has become routine wisdom in our lives. As the Lord changes our hearts, our virtues and good deeds become habits that are invisible to us. When loving kindness flows from a renewed heart, not from conscious efforts to keep regulations, it creates the beautiful lifestyle that James has in mind. As God works His grace in us, our conduct becomes this life orientation of living wisely. And we're not even thinking about it. We're not even working at it because the Spirit is working through us and in us. And this good conduct then is a life orientation. Of course, it's easy to think that we are wise, but it is quite another to show that we are wise. The conduct here should demonstrate our possession of the needed practical insight and understanding to deal with the daily problems of life. After all, this is biblical wisdom. So how is the pattern of good conduct going to be developed in our lives? And short, in a short and simple answer is through work, through our effort. If I wanted to do a household project, it's always a dangerous prospect for me, but if, we ever wanted, if you want to do a household project, what do you do? You read about it. You watch a YouTube video about it. You go to a seminar at Home Depot. You talk to a skilled carpenter. In short, you seek out wise counsel. You work to try to understand the situation. So how do I, or how do we husbands love our wives? Or how do we train our children? Or how do I defeat sexual temptation? And numerous other moral questions of life. Well, I read the scriptures. I read books that orient me to the scriptures and explain the scriptures more. I listen to wise biblical counselors. I seek wisdom from mature believers. You see, we work at learning how to love our wives, how to train our children, how to resist temptation. So James here is saying the same thing about wisdom as he said about faith back in chapter 2. As we saw in chapter 2, show me your faith, James said, by your good works. Here he's saying, show me wisdom by your good conduct, by your good works. Don't just be satisfied, then, with where you are. As D.A. Carson has said, and that is a great quote, no one ever drifted into holiness. We need to continue to pursue and grow 
in biblical wisdom, which will be demonstrated in your life. In short, the individual described here not only knows what is right, but he does what is right through practice and hard work. In fact, I love what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5.14, where he says, Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Constant practice to discern good and evil. This is work. And good conduct must be shown then in his works. Now we see the next phrase here, in the meekness of wisdom. This is a difficult phrase on two counts. First of all, what is the meaning of meekness? We don't use that word a lot, or if we do, I think we have very different ideas whenever we use that term. So what, is it, what does the word meekness mean? And then what is that connection between meekness and wisdom? What does that phrase, meekness of wisdom, mean? Well, beginning with the second question, the meekness of wisdom, then we can look at some other places in the New Testament where a similar phrase is used to give us the right idea understanding here. I'm thinking here particularly of the phrase, unity of the Spirit. That phrase is found in Ephesians 4.3 where Paul says, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what does that phrase, unity of the Spirit, mean? Well, it's the unity that is produced by the Spirit. And likewise here when we see this meekness of wisdom, it's meekness which is produced by wisdom. I believe that's what James is getting at here as he speaks to this idea. Meekness here is produced by this wisdom from above. So what then is meekness? Or some translations might have humility or gentleness. I mean, all of these terms are used synonymously to describe this term. Well, I think it speaks specifically of not needing or not feeling a need to contend for the recognition of personal rights or views. Someone who we would call as modest. There's no need to inform others of your accomplishments or of your position. It's a healthy understanding of our own unworthiness before God and a corresponding humility and lack of pride in our dealings with others. It recognizes how unable we are in and of ourselves to chart our own course in this world and to achieve spiritual fulfillment. In fact, the idea here is quite the opposite of what we hear in our culture every day. The idea of this philosophy that says, find the truth in yourself. Find the strength in yourself. Well, the meekness of wisdom says the opposite. I don't have the strength in myself. I don't have the truth in myself. I have to go outside of myself to find that truth. I have to go to the Word. I have to go to God. I need Him. We need help. And this is the attitude that is described here, I believe, by meekness, by humility. And the Moabites and Ammonites were coming against the Israelites back in Second Chronicles. King Jehoshaphat was at his wit's end. He didn't know what to do. In fact, that's exactly what he says. In Second Chronicles 20, verse 12, he lifts up his voice in prayer to God. And I believe he demonstrates in this prayer the kind of attitude we must have. 
He said, O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You face that very often in life. I don't know what to do. But God does. And I need to be relying on Him. I need Him. I need His direction. I need His help. And this is the attitude, I believe, that is being demonstrated here with this notion of humility or meekness. I think the idea of gentleness is also included here. And when we think of gentleness uh, as part of the nuance of the word here, I see that demonstrated in 2 Timothy chapter 2 where Paul is talking to Timothy and explains to him what one of the qualities of the Lord's servant must be. Beginning in verse 24 of 2 Timothy 2, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, I don't think this is just for the pastor, this exhortation, but it is for all Christians to have a gentle reasoning. And this is the way to win over an objector. And contrary to common perception, a person who is gentle must indeed be strong in order to be gentle. I think perhaps a good illustration of this idea of strength that shows itself in gentle spirit. I can think of uh, the first African-American to break into the baseball world. His name was Jackie Robinson. And he was a very strong, self-controlled, meek individual in refusing to assert his rights. In 1947, as he broke into the uh, all-white world in the uh, Major League Baseball, he was still and demonstrated that he was indeed a man of deep convictions and normally was very fearless in expressing those convictions. But for two years, for the first two years that he was in the league with the Brooklyn Dodgers, he remained almost totally silent almost totally silent in the face of racial slurs were heaped on him by opposing teams, by the opposing manager, by the fans. One particular time, the slurs were particularly bad and nearly unbearable. And Robinson played second base, and across from him was a southern boy from Alabama, Pee Wee Reese. And... Grew up, in, of course, in the South, very much oriented toward the color lines that had been established. But he was a friend of his teammate. And when he heard the jeers and the racial epithets that were going on, he wanted to go to the opposing dugout and yell at them. He wanted to go to the fans and yell at them. But what did he do? He walked over in between innings as they were warming up, and he put his arm around Jackie Robinson in a gesture that said, we're teammates, this is my teammate, he is my equal, and all of you need to knock it off. He said that with a gesture. And instead of yelling, he demonstrated a gentleness. Gentle but strong. Patience and love proved for both Robinson and Reese in that particular that particular story, 
that gentleness does indeed require strength. But it shows itself in the unwillingness to lash out. Have you ever faced with the time when you wanted to scream at someone? When you wanted to verbally mangle that person? When you wanted to publicly publicly humiliate them? Maybe you not only felt like doing that, maybe you did that. After all, you had every right to do so. They had crossed the line over and over again. Now the humility and gentleness of wisdom holds back. It calmly asserts the truth and it lets God take care of the situation. We read in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this is James' first description of the kind of wisdom that true believers must have. And now he wants to explain this kind of wisdom by looking at its opposite, at the wisdom from below. And that's what we see beginning in verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. I think these two phrases here, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, are really synonyms. And we're going to treat them that way here as we look at this text. And we're going to spend a good deal of time thinking about these, this idea of bitter jealousy, of selfish ambition. Because they're clearly in a point of emphasis in the text. James mentions them again in verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. And these ideas are going to be mentioned again in chapter 4. So these are very much a part of wisdom from below. And I think it's necessary that we understand what James is getting at when he uses these phrases, selfish ambition, bitter jealousy. These are indeed the hallmark of wisdom from below, according to James. So on the one hand, as we think of some of the nuances of these ideas, this is a coveting, a self-oriented desire to possess things that are not really ours. But on the other hand, I think it's a bitter antagonism against those who do not express their adherence to God and His truth in the same way as we do. So it's a jealous and a bitter partisanship so that you have the desire to promote your own opinion to the exclusion of others. We put these two ideas together. We have a coveting and a bitter fool. One moment, he might wish, as he looks at his own church, that he, had, that he was able to go to a church that had a worship style or a small group ministry like the church down the road. And then on the other hand, turn, down, turn around immediately and look at the church on the other direction on the road and say, that church has a lousy worship. They're too old-fashioned, not nearly as good as my church. They don't know how to teach the Bible at that church, not nearly as good as my church. So we have a looking down attitude on the one hand, and we have a complaining attitude looking the other direction because Mine's not as good as that. Never happy, never satisfied, always envious, always jealous, looking in contempt 
at those perhaps who aren't like me and then looking with desire for those who aren't like me. Envy wants to grasp rather than give. It's the opposite of caring for the needy. It sees only its own needs and desires, and it thinks other people should care for themselves. So we can see bitter jealousy in this illustration that we could give from the workplace. I have to look out for my own interests. If I don't, no one else will. I must get what I deserve. I see the people who are hired with me. Some have surpassed me, even though they have no more skills and work no harder than I do. I deserve more. I deserve what they have, and I'm going to get it. Or perhaps in the school setting. I'm just as good as that guy who's starting ahead of me. And here I am riding the bench. Now, why does the coach like him and not me? certainly isn't because of our skills, because I know I'm better. And here I am. This just isn't fair. Well, here's the attitude then that can show itself when this type of jealousy is prominent in one's life. If God or some other person is not going to give me what I want, then I will take care of myself. I will get what I want because I can handle this. I'm not getting what I want, so I have to get it myself. I don't need God because I can do it myself. He's not doing for me what I need him to do. I want that. I'm not getting it. I'm just going to have to do it myself. I think another aspect of envy is one that thinks that one's identity or worth derives from status or possessions. As long as someone else has what you think you deserve, I can tell you right now, you're going to be miserable. Whether this is a job, a spouse, a ministry position, a home, a boat. Sorry, I don't mean to talk about boat when it's so cold out, but that, that is something some people like to, to think about in the summer. A friend. We want these things that others have, and we are miserable because we don't have them. Envy can lead to criticizing our rivals, to quarreling. This is what this text is going to tell us again in, in chapter 4. It rejoices in others' sorrows rather than grieving about them. Are you secretly smiling inside when that mother's toddler is acting up? Or when that parent's teen is in trouble? Or when your fellow member loses his or her job or gets demoted at work? You find a bit of satisfaction when the evangelical church across town has a split? Or has a pastor who disqualifies himself from ministry? These are sad things. And yet, these are evidences of an envious heart that is full of bitter jealousy and that poisons the soul. Some other signs of bitter jealousy. Children, you wish you had a toy or a phone or clothes that one of your friends has and you don't think that you can be happy until you get it. Or our teens, you wish you were as good-looking, as intelligent, or had as many friends as that other teen, had as many retweets as the other team in your youth group or at school. Or our single adults may be envious of others your age who have married, or others 
who have, had, who have enough money to buy their own home and you're still renting. Or even worse, you're still living at home. You're upset because they, as you, look, as you compare yourself, they have a job that they like and you don't like yours. Or they have what you consider to be a really cool job and you think yours is insignificant. They get invited to certain social gatherings and you don't. We're envious about these things. Those who are married without children, you have difficulty rejoicing with others who get pregnant because you so desperately want a child of your own. And for those with children, you may be disappointed that both you and your spouse have to work while several other couples you know can live on just one income. Or you are sad that your child is not as quick to walk or not as fast to read or is not as coordinated to throw a ball as the other children that you see all around you. And then as the children grow older, jealousy shows itself when those other kids are getting better grades than mine, or they're performing more expertly on their instruments, or they're doing better in sports, or they get more praise from authority figures, or they have more friends than my kids. I could go on. But what are all of these things talking about? Comparison comparing myself and my situation with others. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10:12, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. When they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Jealous, jealousy, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition are to be absent from our lives. James tells us here what the source of them, the location of these, where it comes from. He says it's in your hearts. We need no external instigators to be jealous or partisan or selfish or envious. These attitudes arise from our hearts, which is why we need to guard our hearts, to guard them from these things which can poison our love for God. As the writer of Proverbs reminds us, we need to keep our heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of of life, and it is in our hearts that these bitter jealousies arise. So we could summarize this section about bitter jealousy this way. It's all about perspective. Worldly wisdom has a limited perspective. Godly wisdom sees things in light of eternity. Worldly wisdom says, what can I get out of this? It views everything by how it affects you, how you can advance yourself, promote yourself, assert yourself. It is motivated by self-centered ambition. It is always comparing itself to others to see who is better or worse. Such wisdom robs us of love, intimacy, trust, fellowship, and harmony with others. So what is the way to free ourselves of this envy? Well, it's a God-oriented perspective on life. God, we should say, has given me the talents I have, whether great or small. He has given me my place in life, whether prominent or obscure. Whatever my lot... I know that God will bless me and I can serve Him faithfully. So blossom where you're planted, knowing the beauty and love and grace of the God who planted you there. Well, there's a command here then given to these who have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in their hearts. Don't boast and be false to the truth. 
Now, there is a positive type of boasting in the Scriptures, and I don't have time to look at these texts with you this morning, but this is clearly not a positive idea here, is it? It's a negative idea. Boasting, trying to make myself look good. Malicious triumphing by somebody over an opponent in a dispute. Perhaps even in your life being in a situation where you try to show yourself to look better by repeating a story about yourself even when you haven't been asked. Putting yourself in a spot where you can let people know how good you are at something. So we can boast. We can lie and be false to the truth. Boasting about our wisdom while having envy and jealousy is actually lying against the truth. And so he gives a description here of jealous and envious people in verse 15. It's not wisdom from, that comes down from above, from God, but rather is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now, these three adjectives are really in ascending order of strength. Earthly springs out of that, it springs out of and is limited to the frail and finite life of unregenerate humanity. Unspiritual, the part of man where human feeling and human reason reign supreme. And every time this term is used in the New Testament, it's always negative. Think of that verse in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. Neither can he grasp them because they're spiritually understood or discerned. Or, James, or Jude 19 is another place where that uh, term is used, where Jude says, It is these who cause divisions, worldly people who are devoid of the Spirit. That phrase, worldly people, is this very same word. So this is a negative idea, of course, as well. And then thirdly, demonic, inspired by the devil. We actually see the triad of evil here. The world, earthly, the flesh, unspiritual, and the devil. And this is indeed what wisdom from below looks like. Now, can a true Christian live in accordance with earthly wisdom that is demonic? Well, any Christian, of course, can fall into a sin, even a pattern of sin for a time. But true Christians will persevere and will not be able to continue living in accordance with wisdom from below. If you're relying on a prayer or a spiritual experience of some kind while being satisfied to live according to the wisdom from below, you ought to be doubting your relationship with Christ. Because true Christians cannot be satisfied with life down in wisdom from below. Well, now we see the consequence of wisdom from below in verse 16. Notice it's disorder and every vile practice. James has already talked about disorder several times. Back in chapter 1, he talks about the double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. Here in chapter 3 and verse 8, he talks about the um, human being cannot tame the tongue. It is restless evil. That's the same term here that's used. This idea of disorder that happens. We see it in the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about the disorder that was taking place and the disunity that was taking place in the church because they were coming together for their fellowship meals and the wealthy were bringing lots of food and drink and they were not sharing it. They were keeping it to themselves and they were making a statement to the poor people who didn't have the food and drink to say, we are better than you. And Paul tells us that that is awful 
to treat one another in this way. And that's why I think he says in chapter 14 where he says, as he's giving out rules for how they to follow in the order of worship of the church, he says, God is not a God of confusion. Okay, he's a God of orderliness. And confusion and disorderliness happen when we have selfish ambition and bitter jealousy amongst us. They cause disunity and confusion. Every kind of evil practice, James says. So now that James has explained wisdom from below, he comes back to discussing the kind of wisdom that he was encouraging back in verse 13 as we come to verse 17. The wisdom from above is first, the first prominent, preeminent point in this list here is purity. It connotes the innocence and moral blamelessness that we ought to have in life. And he follows this idea of purity, which must really control all the rest of the words of description that he gives here, with several words which we, we can't see it in English, but it's interesting how James groups together here uh, three, the first three characteristics here, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, are all beginning with the same Greek letter and all ending with the same type of, with the same ending. With the point, of course, as we often do when we use alliteration, to try to bring home a point and try to have you remember them. And so that's what he's doing here, although we can't see it in English. But what are these three? Peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Peaceable, of course, pursues peace and does not compromise with sin to maintain it. Being gentle, we've talked about this as well. Considerate, respecting other people's feelings. I think it's similar to the way a parent would be considerate to the feelings of fear that a young child might have confronting a large dog or a roller coaster. Open to reason. Open to reason is submissive is the idea here as well. Willing deference to others when unalterable theological or moral principles are not involved. I think we could illustrate this concept with the idea of a couple of seminarians who are arguing a theological point. And usually the arguments that take place in seminary classrooms are not about super important issues. They're about minor details. But, and that's my point here, it's a minor detail. And this is a willing deference to the other guy to say, okay, I don't need to try to convince everybody else in the class. I'm open to reason. I'm open to listening to you and to what your opinion is. The next two terms, full of mercy and good fruit, are a love for a neighbor that shows itself in action. Of course, something that James has been commenting on throughout the book. I think of the Beatitudes as well, where Jesus talks about blessed are the merciful and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that's these very ideas, full of mercy, full of good fruit. Next, we see impartial. This is not divisive. This is a person who has finally settled the issue of where his loyalty lies. And I might say that no one else wonders where his loyalties lie. They can tell by his life who he's following. They can tell who his Lord is. And then sincere and unhypocritical. Not playing a part, but being transparent. And what is the consequence of this wisdom? Just like there was a consequence to the wisdom from below, that of disorder and every vile practice, well, there's a consequence for the wisdom from above, and that's what we find in verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace. We have people here who make peace, and they sow the fruit of righteousness. So that we see that righteous behavior that peacemakers facilitate. 
And the fruit of righteousness here results when wise living, particularly peacemaking, as the illustration is here, is practice. This is conduct which is pleasing to God. Peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, didn't he, in that same list of Beatitudes in Matthew 5. James himself demonstrated this in his Jerusalem Council discussions there in Acts 15 and Acts 21 where he talks to Paul about taking that vow. He's trying to make peace in the, in the congregation there in Jerusalem. It's not just an avoidance of problems and uncomfortable issues. Rather, seeks to reconcile rather than divide. Peacemakers don't bring up past issues in the middle of a disagreement with their spouse. Peacemakers don't pass along negative information about someone to others or to that person themselves. You know, when Amy speaks negatively about Sally to Mary, Mary then goes and tells Sally what Amy just said about her. That's the opposite of peacemaking. A peacemaker does not act in that way. No, people who seek to make peace produce righteous works. So, two summary statements that I think bring together here this discussion of wisdom from above and wisdom from below. You don't get godly wisdom from intellectual effort or self-discipline or practical experience as much as you get it from being with God. David Platt has mentioned this, and I think it's a good quotation. We need to be desperate before God for wisdom. Think of what Solomon did there in 1 Kings 3.9. What did he say? Give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people. He asked for it. He went to God for wisdom. Or Alec Matier has said this, The life of wisdom is just another way of talking about being right with God and of the life which, by good works, shows what a lovely thing being right with God is. So, how did you do on this test? Apart from Christ, again, we all get a zero. Absolute failure. In Christ, we can live in accordance with the wisdom from above. Yet, it is easy to fall into the patterns of behavior, like bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that produce disorder and all types of evil practices. These are qualities of wisdom from below, of wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now, through Christ, God has provided the means by which we can live wisely. And with this help, we can live righteously and humbly, demonstrating purity, peace, gentleness, deference, mercy, impartiality, and sincerity. But the wisdom from above is not received by some special spiritual key or by the reception of some spiritual gift or by wishing it so. Rather, it comes as the result of a life lived in light of the forgiving, grace-giving, life-infusing presence of Christ and the Spirit in your life. We rely on Him for help to live wisely. We rely on Him to pass the wisdom test. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we need Your help to live in accordance with the wisdom from above. May we indeed rely upon our Savior and our relationship with Him to have lives that demonstrate this wisdom, this wisdom from above. May we pass this test by Your grace and for Your glory. Amen.